0: seeing the world as other people see it and you may have you may have heard the motto you know walking a thousand miles in someone else's shoes that's how you empathize.
1: Hi everyone, thanks for tuning in to Nodes of Design. To help support our mission spread knowledge, we have a very special guest on today's episode. Let's welcome Reggie Murphy, who is passionate about creating a human-centered world and he's a 20 years veteran of UX research and design space. Currently, he's the director of research at Twitter, where he leads the team of creation and conversation research at Twitter. Prior to Twitter, Reggie built and led client experiences research team at Vanguard and he also led research teams at Meta, where he helped build Facebook cameras effect platforms Facebook groups and workspaces in this episode Reggie had shared wonderful insights on human centered research we had discussed on what is human centered research and what are the different ways to understand and empathize with user we then spoke about different frameworks to follow our approach for human centered research and later discussed on how research is both an art and science and how to balance this combination of art and science while capturing deeper insight later that we discussed on how to focus on the insights gained from the user research. And synthesize them and make it accessible across the board. We then concluded the show by Reggie's recommendations on top 5 skills that a researcher should have and also what does Reggie look for in a researcher's portfolio. Hope you guys enjoyed this episode. And on every Friday, we release new episodes with different creative leaders from around the world to help you better understand different concepts related to design. So don't forget to tune in into Notes of Design every Friday. With that being said, happy designing everyone. Hi, Reggie. Welcome to Nodes of Design. It's a pleasure hosting you today on our show.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: How was your day so far?
0: Oh, the day has been going really, really well. I am just very happy to um, have this opportunity to talk with you. That's
1: wonderful, Reggie. So if you could give a brief about yourself to our audience out there.
0: Sure. Uh, my name is Reggie Murphy and uh, I lead research at Twitter, I'm a director of research at Twitter. I have been working as a researcher and a leader in research for over 20 years. So <laughs> I've been doing this for quite some time. Um, this has been my life. Uh, this has been my passion to lead research and conduct research. And it's been a wonderful ride so far.
1: That's wonderful, Reggie. Thank you so much. So what was your journey into research and how did you
0: start and what are your tips to the beginners on how to start? Wow. This is a, my journey into research really started. And I tell my tell people who ask me this question is I sort of fell into it. Um, but it, it, there, there was a, there was a, a, a direction here. So when I was in college, I, even though I was a history major, I minored in communications. And the communications minor led me to doing a whole lot of work at the campus radio station. So one of my very first jobs at the campus radio station was being a news reporter. And this was really fun. It was just exciting to me. I thought this was actually what I wanted to do as a career, you know, reporting live, Reggie Murphy from the scene, right? And, but what I learned What I really enjoyed about being a news reporter—it's journalism, and journalism—the the 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 art of journalism is going out and investigating and learning and gathering information. At that time, I did not know this was research. I just thought it was, hey, you were—I was a news reporter. I was going out into the field, interviewing people, and then coming back to the radio station and editing and and letting it broadcast over the radio waves. And so, but after college, I really didn't under didn't know if news if news reporting was was right for me and so i ended up in graduate school in a masters degree program in communications in this program i took a lot of research classes a lot of um management courses, and I ended up doing a internship at a local radio station where I went to graduate school. And this changed the game for me. I worked with the sales team. And one of my job was to pull together the research that the sales people would use to go out and sell advertising on the radio station. And it was great. You know, I would look into these databases that would show information about, say, for example, how many people plan to buy furniture in the market over the next year. And then we had data that showed of those people who plan to buy furniture, this is how many listen to our radio station. And so it was a really cool thing to put together for the salespeople to go out and sell advertising. Well, ultimately, I I enjoyed that so much that I ended up, getting a job as a radio advertising salesperson for a couple of years. And (laughs) quite frankly, I was horrible at it. (laughs) Well, I wasn't very good at selling, (laughs) but what I was good at was developing those presentations to share the information about how our radio station was performing in the market against all of the competitors. That's what excited me. And so I got some advice from a mentor that said, Hey, you know, you should learn a little bit more about research. Maybe this is something that you might want to do. And so I ended up in a doctoral program in communications. And this helped me further my understanding about the different types of research methods. And um, so the PhD is in communications. And at that time, and this is I I promise this is, I can shorten this story, (laughs) but at the time the internet was becoming a thing. The internet was becoming the internet. At that time, we called it the World Wide Web, if you recall. And anyone who was studying communications or information science, which I was, we were studying how people were adopting this new technology, but also how companies were using it to uh, engage their audiences and to you know develop revenue streams um, for themselves. And that was so fascinating to me. And so that's what I studied. And that's what I wrote my dissertation about. And that's how I landed my first job out of graduate school was with a company that was helping other companies build websites. And I started uh, doing what is now called usability testing at that time. I think we we called it usability testing, but it wasn't really called UX. It was, we were just helping companies build better websites. Because if you know, back in the day when (laughs) the internet, (laughs) the internet began, websites were horrible. They looked horrible. So, uh, so that was a really good experience. Um, so then my career, um, after after that particular role, I joined a company that owned USA Today, the newspaper company, the newspaper, uh, and I spent uh, quite quite a bit of time there, about twelve years, uh, leading various research teams and helping the company develop its first uh, the, the iPhone app when it came out and the iPad app, and so I, I was I worked on product teams to help develop that. Of course, I led the research around you know how our customers um, uh, wanted to use these uh, types of uh, mobile systems when um, when. They they were coming out and that was a great experience. I learned a lot at the company. Um, and so my career just took a turn uh, and I left there and worked for a, a design and research consultancy and worked primarily on enterprise uh systems and platforms. So companies would install these huge platforms. And sometimes uh, the adoption was low across the company. So they would hire us to come in and understand, you know, what the people problems were, what the process problems were and what problems that there could be with the technology. And then we'd help the company, um, fix it, fix the, the problems that they had so that they could, so that they could gain adoption, um, for these big, uh, systems, because you you only you only could install one unlike apps on your phone you have like five or six apps that do five do the same thing no when you install a big enterprise system in companies you can only use that and so you have to get it right I enjoyed that after that um, I landed at Facebook um, now uh, meta and I led research teams there uh, and really enjoyed my experience uh, and then That role led to a role at the financial services company called Vanguard, and I uh, uh, built and led a a client experience team, research team there, and now Twitter. That's a long journey, but it's been uh, over 20 years of just wonderful experiences, understanding how people use technology, and uh, I I wouldn't trade it for anything. (laughs) Um, So... I think now that user experience research, we call UX research, is quite mature. Um, It's you can I would say the first thing to do is if you're interested, just do your research on research on what it means to be in this business, particularly user experience research, because it's a little different than market research. Um, They're cousins. There's a whole lot you can learn about it. There's so many articles and books on it now that you know you can really learn a whole lot just with a simple google search also i would encourage you to you know find people professionals in the business that you can talk to and learn from i mean there's i have so many mentors once you find a few that you really trust and you can learn from um i think i think if this is a field where you really want to pursue find someone who's successful who's doing some Who's who? Who's really successful in it? And I'd say that about any field, really. Uh, find a mentor who you can talk to and learn from. So that's two. And I think the third thing is, if you're really interested, let's try to find a way to do an internship. Many companies offer them. Small, medium, and large companies offer some type of internship that is on-the-job experiences that uh, you. you can, I remember doing internships in high school when I was in high school. Um, it it just it broadened my understanding about the space uh, about the particular space for that, that I was, that I was um, doing an internship for. And I'll never forget. I remember I did an internship in civil engineering and I, you know, it was, it was architecture design. It was, but I just quickly found out that was not my thing. (laughs) I I have an appreciation for it now uh, more than I did before I did the internship, but that's the only way that you i think you can really learn whether or not you want if 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 this field is for you or any field is for you
1: thank you so much rajiv for such beautiful story and wonderful tips so let's get into our episode which is human centered research so what exactly is human centered research and what are the different ways to understand and empathize with the
0: user so human centered research comes from well let's let's take the first two words human centered and many people know human centered design. That's that has that's you. You Google human centered design, you find all kinds of of articles and information. And the the part of the part that I like about it being human centered, that means having a 360 degree understanding about people. And when you think about research, research just by definition is centered around uh, humans and I look at that. Uh, so it m- might be a redundant saying human centered <laughs> research, but but we'll go with it. <laughs> but I think it's is painting a clear picture of who or designing ways to paint a clear picture of who you're trying to understand. And. And I'm talking about a really clear picture with all of the shades of colors and textures and lines and circles and all of those things and all the nuance that human beings have. Human beings are very complex, complicated, and full of contradictions. And so when you are conducting human centered research, you are designing your research to understand all of that. And um, you may not understand everything, but you can design research that really. uh, gets you close um, I think that there are so many ways that you can understand and empathize uh, uh, with with people there's so many methods out there that allow us to do this um, well first of all there's you know there's quantitative methods and there's qualitative methods and um, you know the, the quant methods you know you're looking at you know how many you know you're trying to understand um, uh, big Populations of of people and qual you're trying to go deep you you know you're trying to um, trying to go uh, trying to understand deeply um, how people are thinking and feeling and there's so many methods that you can deploy in order to do this um, the very first task of a researcher is to have empathy for the group of people or the population that you're trying to understand there are a number of ways that you can, or a number of methods that you can use to understand and empathize with people. I think interviewing is key. And so conducting one-on-one interviews in um, long interviews, sometimes, you know, two, three hour interviews with someone, you can really spend time with them and understanding their world. I had a professor back in graduate school used to say, seeing the world as other people see it. And you may have have heard the motto, you know, walking a thousand miles in someone else's shoes. You know, that's that's how you empathize. Um, There is an observational technique called being a fly on a wall, and it's literally just sitting and watching. And um, we deploy this often. The reason why I think empathy is important also is that there are populations of people who I believe We do not design for there's about 50 percent of the world's population experience some form of disability, whether it's um, hearing impairment, being visually impaired. Um, And when you think about the technology that that is designed in the world, um, it um, does not usually take in the account to account um, for for people with disabilities. And so I think that's important. I think you, you will begin to see things in a different way um, and you begin to design uh, in a different way when you have deep empathy for someone who is uh, is not an able-bodied person.
1: Thank you so much, Reggie. So what are the different frameworks you follow for this human-centered research that can also balance the user needs, but also the business
0: goals? So whenever I begin a design challenge or an exploration, I ask myself three questions. First, who am I designing for? What problem am I trying to solve for them? And how will I know that I'm successful? This is a very simple and useful approach to problem solving. And so after you've designed, uh, answered these questions the best to, after you've answered these questions to the best of your ability, that's when you just begin your journey and So the operational framework for human-centered design work or product development, and these are pretty known, well-known, they follow this sequence of events. First, you have this discovery moment where you're observing, you're learning, you're listening and trying to understand what your audience is saying to you. And then second is... You bring all this information back and you you synthesize it, you're analyzing, you're telling stories about what you've learned. And the outcome of that exercise are what we call user stories, or you may even create personas. But more importantly, you are nailing what the customer needs are. And so the customer needs. So let's let's, for example, a customer need could be something like this. Let's say if you're thinking about, a let's say there's a financial app and The customer need could be people need to feel confident in their choices for selecting a particular product throughout the process. They want to feel confident. Maybe we learned through our research that uh, they didn't feel good at the end of the process or uh, about what they purchased or somewhere along the way, they lost confidence altogether and dropped out. So we learned that in the first phase. And so then. In the second phase of synthesis, we are sort of nailing this down and saying, "Okay, this is the actual customer need that we're trying to solve for. And then so the third phase uh, is brainstorming. So how do we solve this problem? So we we get together and figure out, well, how do we help this customer feel more confident um, in, in in their process? And then after that, uh, I won't go into super detail, but there's there's prototyping. You sketch out some concepts uh, based on your ideas and then it becomes a test and iterate. You show these early concepts to some people, your audience, and you get feedback and then you iterate and then you refine. And then you go back and you get more feedback and then ultimately you walk away or you you build a product that then you can get out and experiment in the marketplace. So those are some I think very simple and useful frameworks that we uh, deploy when we are trying to tackle a a problem space.
1: Thanks, Reggie. So research is both an art and science and it's filled with emotions. So how to balance all these combinations while capturing deep insights?
0: Let me first say that there are fundamentals of research that we adhere to throughout the journey of our research project. And there is a balance that we have to make as we are conducting the research, but also as we are analyzing. it. So now in quant research, you may go into your analysis, just laser focused on what you want on what you want it to be on on your approach. But as you're conducting your analysis, you might learn something that you didn't expect. And that might prompt you to go a little deeper in another way. Maybe you are doing another type of analysis with that same data set. You just have to step back. Many times and just take a moment and to assess what you have been working with. And you might have to modify your approach to a new uh, method to understand what you're trying to learn from that data set a bit better. Now, in qual research, you might be out into the field and there something might unexpectedly happen and that breaks the flow of your interview for example and we just have to make those adjustments on the fly so that's the balance of you know the, the, the science and art of, of of quality research there are moments in qual research where participants just might start down an interesting road and they may share something that's totally unexpected and just super intriguing you know this is happening and i've seen this many times in my experience, their eyes light up, their body language changes. And when these organic moments happen, we just have to sit back and listen, observe, and just let that interview veer off into that unknown space. Because this is when I think the good stuff starts to happen. This is when we really start learning and start digging into someone's uh, personal experience and truly uncover what they might need. Sometimes the topics also. Sometimes the topics that we're exploring are sensitive, or maybe a participant might share something that's emotional, or might need a moment and might need a moment to gather themselves. And so, when this happens, we just have to slow the interview down and make some adjustments. Again, this is where um, the savvy and finesse of an interviewer or a a researcher uh, comes into play, because you know we don't want to be so um, stuck on one approach that we can't make adjustments when things like that happen. And we just have to be open. We have to be open to the possibilities of what we might learn. We have to be open to the to our assumptions just being completely turned upside down. <laughs> and so we can, it, it, to sum all this up, we can, we can design the best research plan, the best research program, but humans are complex. And so during our research, we just have to approach it with an open mind so that we walk away with information about our customers' problems that's rich, valuable, and where we see an opportunity for us to solve.
1: Thanks, Rajee. So how to focus on the outcomes? Like, what will you do with the inside screen from a user research and synthesize and make them accessible across the board? Well,
0: one of the important things that researchers must do is set up a way to document what you're learning. And this comes with practice. And as a researcher, you know, I've been doing it for so long now that it's secondhand to me. But I think as, you know, new researchers coming into this field, it's really important as you set up your research design and your protocols is that you also set up your data collection documentation mechanism. You know, how are you going to um, collect and organize that data? And it is key because you want to be able to to take this information and to uh, set it up so that you can discuss it with the the people that are on your team. And some of them may not be able to join you on, your, uh, on the actual research. Hopefully, many can, but some may not be able to. So you want to be able to have it organized in a way that people who did not show up to see it live for themselves can now, after the fact, see it. Um, so I think what... So the first part of conducting research is actually, you know, designing the research protocols and then going out into the field, whether it's qual or quant research, conducting the research, and then, um, uh, and then coming back and having a moment where there is synthesis. Um, some people call it storytelling, but there is a moment where you've got all of this data and you're just literally trying to make sense of it. What did we learn? You know, what are our key takeaways? And something that I Really love doing is is whiteboarding it, and of course since the pandemic, you know a lot of us are working remotely and we're using these digital tools. But I'm kind of old school. I enjoy an actual physical whiteboard (laughs) with stickies and markers, uh, with uh, dry erase markers and um, drawing patterns and piecing patterns together um, so that we can make sense of things. Um, And so doing the synthesis, yeah, we're focusing on what we learned. Um, we are telling user stories, we're crafting user stories. It may end up as how might we, I think in an innovation design thinking space, um, that terminology is used. How might we help customer XYZ do this and this? Or it's just basically what are the customer needs? Maybe that's a question that we're trying to ask and we make a list of customer needs. And we weigh them against things that we can actually solve for, or we might do, um, uh, you know, we'll, will create, um, you know, I, you know, I am a customer, I am trying to do this, but because of this, I can't do this and it makes me feel this way, you know, so we, so those are some of the ways that we synthesize what we're learning and discussing it as a team, we're illustrating it um, and we're reaching a moment where, okay, now we have some really solid design principles, it could be design principles, customer needs, how might we statements, that then we can move forward to the next step in the process. When you talk about accessibility, uh, making accessible for folks, you can do that in a number of ways. From a digital perspective, um, you know, there's obviously, you know, there's PowerPoints and PDFs and depending on whatever collaboration tool that you use, you make it accessible. Um, you, you give access to your cross-functional partners and give them access to this information in whatever tool that your collaboration tool that your organization is using. I think that's essential is to have literally an open book to the research. So. Again, if someone wasn't able to dive in, they have access to the videos that we that we recorded or audio, they have access to any notes that were t- that were taken. Uh, and this is helpful to the team because now they can feel like they are experiencing and even though they didn't see it firsthand.
1: Thank you so much Reggie, for that insightful answer. What are the essential characteristics or skills that you think a brilliant researcher should have? Also, what do you look for in a researcher's
0: portfolio? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I like your word. I like the adjective, brilliant research. <laughs> yes. Okay. I, I think I've got an answer. <laughs> um, and uh, I don't think these will surprise anyone. Um, curiosity, being curious. You know, as I mentioned back when I was a campus radio station news reporter in my undergraduate days, and I was just curious. And I enjoyed talking with people about their life and experiences. And I'll never forget this. I remember one of the very first interviews I did. As a, as a news reporter, was with a world-renowned harpist. I don't know, he was just the most interesting person. I interviewed him over the phone. I just kept asking him questions about, Music composition and how he created his 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 chord progressions on the harp, and what was it like to travel all over all over the world and play. So it was just that curiosity that I believe made that news story awesome, and I got a lot of accolades for it at the radio station. People were saying, "Oh, wow, you really you really helped us understand." And because this particular person was coming to campus, I think over in the, within that within that month to do a performance, and so they wanted to do a news piece on him. So. Again, being very, very very curious is number 1 i think number 2 is of course we've talked about this previously having empathy and and sometimes it take like it takes it takes a while to to do this i i have i you know i can say that i've, I've done research in many parts of the world and you know, for someone who's in a you know when you go to different parts of the world to conduct research, it helps you, it it helps you understand that you know not everybody lives like you, not everybody eats like you, not everybody speaks like you. And I love that's why I love this job and I love this career field is because you can go and you can really learn about people. I remember we I did a research project um, in New Orleans um about 5 years after hurricane katrina and i met with people who lost everything in the in the um uh, in the, in that catastrophe i met people who lost some things but then i met people who just literally lost everything and they had to completely rebuild their lives and i was, I was talking with him about media perception perceptions of media but that it, it, you know it almost <laughs> the topic that i was really trying to understand yeah i got some information there but just being able to sit across from someone uh, because I feel I've been very fortunate in my life. And never, not, nothing like this has ever happened to me. But as a researcher, just sitting there and listening to them and watching them crying, watching them tell me these stories about how they, about what they had to do in order to survive during the hurricane and after the hurricane was just deeply moving to me. And it, it, it just affected me that I, I remember those interviews still to this day that I conducted. So as a researcher, The second thing is having empathy is critical to the job. Number three, other fundamentals. I think the fundamentals of conducting interviews, usability testing, and designing surveys are essential as a user experience researcher. I think if you can learn those three things and be really good at it uh, as you start your career, um, you add the other things after that, but it's it's learning how to do interviews, um, learning how to conduct basic standard usability testing, and that's task-based, also usability testing, um, and just designing surveys. I think uh, that will help you. So that's being curious, having empathy, fundamentals, and I have two more. <laughs> telling a story. Here's what they don't teach you in school. You won't learn this in school. I'm going to tell you this right now. You will not learn how to tell a story or research story in school. As a researcher, after we come out of the field and we are synthesizing and we're developing our report of what we're trying to share out of what we learned, we then there's a moment where we have to think about the audience that we're going to share this with and what we want them to know and what we want them to do with this information. And so we're tasked with being having to pull all of the pieces together that we have collected in order to tell the best story possible so that people will understand it and it resonates and action will be taken. And so that might mean Pulling together your uh, the secondary research that you conducted, and then the competitive research, all the behavioral analytics. So you're working with you know the data scientists pull that together, and then you've got the research that you conducted. And so it it becomes this. Um, it seems kind of you know complicated, but it's but as you grow in your career and and you begin to understand how all these pieces fit, you can do it pretty systematically. But it's the art. This is when you talk about art and science. This is now the art of this. And I would say in the, in in my experience, um, there are those who can do this really well and those who can't. And I think that hopefully those who can't can can start <laughs> doing it better. But this is this is one of the the, the biggest, I think, um, growth areas for a researcher is to. Is to is to create a narrative around the work that they've done so that it resonates with their uh, cross-functional partners, um, and that leads into the to, to the last point here, which is uh, is is developing a point of view. And so n- now that you have a story, so having a story is one thing, but now developing a point of view about the work that you've done is something else. It's it's now you are sort of putting your stake in the ground and saying. As a result of what we've learned here, this is what we believe you should do, and here is why. And and sharing it with confidence and with um, with all of the support of your research materials, um, it I think it takes a while to for for researchers to build up that that umph that you need to. Uh, and so, sometimes you 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 have to you know take 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 a step. You have to take a step forward, and and it might be an unpopular point of view. <laughs> with some of your cross-functional partners. So you have to know that balance of, hey, how far you push uh, and then how how much you push in order to influence. Um, but I think that's so key. So being curious, having empathy, learning the fundamentals, being able to weave a really solid narrative around your research and telling and having a point of view are the five uh, really central characteristics. So now second question is what do I look for in a researcher's portfolio? I'm looking for all of those five things. <laughs> 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 but seriously, it, uh, there there's some really good ones out there. Uh, you can look online. Um, but I, it, it really helps for a researcher to have a little bit about themselves, what their passions are um, as a researcher. But secondly, what are their skills? What can you actually do? What are the research methods that you, on day one, if we hired you, that you could do without anyone helping you? And then what are those skills that you are still working to get better at? I love that type of introspection and that someone can share with me. Say, hey, you know, Reg, these are the things that I do well. And these are the things I'm still working on. Um, and here they are. Uh, and, but that, and, and that's great as a, as a research leader, I can look at that and go, okay, cool. Now I know what I can help you with. So, um, telling a little bit about yourself. Um, second is, you know, your, your research skills. Um, and then you want to see two or three Case studies from the beginning to end um, that you can share that really shows the the breath and uh, the the breath of your experience, um, and you want to share these again. You want to tell a good story about your research. You know, so what was the problem you were trying to solve for? What methods or method or methods did you use in order to solve that problem? Tell a little bit about the the research activities and then what you learned and then what was done afterwards? What was the impact of the work? I think that's the key that is often missed in research portfolios. It's like, oh, they they show me everything about how the research was conducted, but then it's like, well, what happened? (laughs) What happened afterwards? And I think it's essential that if you're able to talk about sometimes you can't but if you're able to talk about the impact of the work as a result of what I did or what I shared, the point of view I laid out to my key stakeholders, this was changed. This strategy was informed. Um, this was launched as a result and it increased engagement 5%. You know, If you're able to weave those stories into your case study and your portfolio, that really does help. Um, so I, w- I think those are the main things I w- I'd be looking for in, in a researcher's portfolio.
1: Thank you so much, Reggie, for sharing us in such great depth and wonderful tips. So, could you please share with us how does your typical day look like, or any interesting stories?
0: <laughs> well, I should say there is no typical day for a researcher, <laughs> especially especially a research leader. Uh, but let me let me see if I can give you some a general perspective of of. Of the life of a researcher i think and i think i could speak for most companies in this way uh, a researcher is generally working on three maybe four projects at any one time i think four might be a stretch depending on the company or the size of the company or the team that you're working on but you're working on three or four projects at any one time and so your 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 week or your day could be managing those the activities within those projects. Not all of them will be at the same stage. So project A, you could just be getting started and you're kicking off with your project team and you're learning what they want to learn. You're trying to understand what they want to learn and you're gathering information about what the research design could look like. So project A could be in that phase and project, and so you may be spending time during the week doing that. And then project B could be You might be executing, you might be conducting interviews, so you may be spending two days um, conducting one on one interviews or usability tests or 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 working with working to create a a survey design. Um, And then, you know, Project C could be at the end. And so you're synthesizing. (laughs) So it's so a researcher could be working on three or four different projects and then you might be uh, working on a project that's helping the team. Maybe you're working on something that is um, um, helping the team um, with uh, uh, with their knowledge management system or something like that. So you know, it's uh, the, the life of the life of a researcher is varied, and there's really no typical typical day. Everyone's day is a little a, a little bit different. Um, but I will say that the and the reason why I love this job so much is that I like that it's not typical. I like that you have to do things on the fly. As I have. Uh, conducted research with with day traders. I've gone to their homes and have watched them trade stocks and understood how they, uh, you know, what they're experiencing using a particular platform to 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 do their day trading activities. Um, one of the one project that I remember very distinctly is is sitting down next to um, people who um, work at. Uh, call centers for, a, it was this was for a utility company. And you can imagine, um, you know, sometimes when things do not work and you need to call a you know, the telecom company or a utility company <laughs> and complain, this is why empathy is important. Before you do that, go sit at a, at a call center and watch what they have to go through when someone is calling them to complain about their bill or about an outage or something. And I just remember distinctly just sitting there. This was an observational activity. And so I would watch them uh, take a call. I'd watch what they do on the screen. They had multiple screens that they had to navigate around in order to solve a customer's problem. It was super stressful. They had They were talking to one customer, two or three waiting to talk to them. And after all the calls, I'd conduct an interview with them about it. And it just, you know, stress to see the pain on their faces using this, you know, oftentimes very, very um, difficult technology, very user unfriendly technology was just uh, was uh, it was just painful to watch. But. It was just interesting. So it's, I have deep empathy now <laughs> for individuals who work in these types of, of jobs. And so it's really interesting. And so it's it's being in that environment. And then our, um, uh, I also, and I've done research in, um, I remember in the early days of mobile apps, uh, especially when I worked at USA Today, we would do research on um, trying to understand just how people consume news. Um, during their commute. (laughs) And so we designed a project where we um, would wake up in the morning and we would we we contacted our participants and we would meet them uh, at their house. And and we were focused on people who had long commutes. So so say two hour commutes to work and we would just commute with them. We we we'd go from their car to the bus station and they would go from the bus and we would we would sit there next to them and we talked to them and we just watched them as they read the news and and they talked on the phone, we watched their activity and then they go to the train and then we'd watch them. We'd sit next to them on the train and then we'd go. We would we would observe them all the way until they walk into their office at work. Interesting work to, to understand someone and how they think about the news throughout the morning, throughout their morning commute. That's interesting work. That's not a typical day for a researcher. Right. That is that is um, what makes this jobs so fulfilling is that you are able to have these experiences and um, get to know how people are using various products and services in interesting ways and how you can try to help them. And that's with that particular project I just mentioned. um, That's what we were trying to just understand is, you know, what does news fit in someone's commute life? And, and how can we help um, them find the information that they're looking for uh, better? And so I, I just remember that, uh, I remember a lot of projects, but that one, you know, some of them really stick out to me. Um, I can go on and on and on, but <laughs> those are some that uh, illustrate that there is no real typical day for a, a researcher. Um, every day is different. And that's what's wonderful about this uh, industry.
1: Thank you, Reggie, for such wonderful stories. So let's conclude this show by you recommending three favorite books of yours and also people who inspire you the most in the space.
0: So three books, three books that I recommend. I think the first one is Don Norman's Design of Everyday Things. I think this is essential reading for anyone going into this space. The Design of Everyday Things by Don Norman. And then Steve Krug's book called Don't Make Me Think. This book is all about usability testing. As I mentioned earlier, I think Usability testing is a fundamental, is, it's a fundamental skill for a, a researcher in, in this space. Don't make me think about Steve Group. And then third, might, you might not expect this one. Um, this is not necessarily a research book, but I really like this book because as, as you grow in your career, you're going to be working and collaborating with teams. Um, I think Kim Scott's book Radical Candor is really good because it helps you, it, it gives you tips and guidance on how to give feedback to other people, uh, how to accept feedback. And I think this helps all of us become uh, better cross-functional partners and collaborative cross-functional partners so that we can um, huddle around a problem, sp- problem space and get good work done. So those are my three books. Now, people who have inspired me, I would say the first two people are my parents. My father was my first coach, my first mentor. Um, the things that I the thing that I remember about him the most, he's, he's passed away now, but the thing I remember about him most is that he, he always had two or three jobs. His work ethic was just <laughs> unstoppable. And I just saw that in him. And that's where I get my work ethic from is from him. He, he, he always um had uh something else going he always had his side hustles and uh it was just amazing just to watch him my mother um she was just a beautiful soul she passed away early in my life and uh, she was intelligent kind she had a sharp tongue and she had a quick wit so i get my sense of humor from her but the thing that inspires me inspires me still today about her the most is that she passed away from an illness called scleroderma, and this illness really hindered her ability to use her hands. Um, it's a it's a disease that affects her joints, and um, she had the really profound symptoms. So later in her life, it was very difficult for her to move around, but she was always at Every game I played, every presentation that I did, every everything that I was doing in my early life. I think when I was in high school, she was always there with a smile on her face and you would never know that something was wrong. And so I take that from her She inspired that in me and she was always pushing me. Always pushing me, Reggie. Get your get your resume done, Reggie. Apply for this. Apply for that. So that motivation at 402, that um, that um, that push to succeed and excel, I get from her. I think other people that inspire me are Maya Angelou. I had an opportunity to hear her speak twice while she was living when I was in college, and. She was just amazing. I just I wanted to I, I wanted to be I wanted to speak like Maya Angelou. She was just a brilliant storyteller. and She spoke with conviction and grace and just imagination. And I was inspired by that. Um, I'm inspired by all of those who 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 sacrificed during the civil rights movement here in the, in the United States. I think everyone who. Who gave their lives and their time to that movement inspire and motivate me? Because I wouldn't be sitting here talking with you if not for them and the sacrifices that they made. So, and I would not have had the opportunities in my career without them. So they they continue to inspire me to this day, and and other writers and thinkers of the day. I think Michael Eric Dyson. I've read a number of his books. He inspires me today. So uh, those are just a few people that inspire me, and um, I hope to uh, have more <laughs> as I as I continue this journey in my life.
1: Thank you, Reggie, for sharing all these wonderful insights with us. We are looking forward to host you again in our upcoming episodes. Thanks for your time.
0: It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you for inviting me and uh, I hope you have a great day.